Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the, of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached, reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall, you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will, and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at, at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Good morning, Covenant. It's good to see everyone this morning. You know, uh, being a child of the, of the 60s and the 70s, um, music was a big part of, of my upbringing, and music was changing during that era of time. And while there's lots of debate about, you know, what the events that happened in our world during that era, the thing that is probably not debated is that the most important song of the 1970s, it set the bar, it changed people's perspective on music, uh, it defined the entire decade, without a doubt, is Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, okay? Without a doubt. Uh, music facts, excuse me, song facts. Uh, and other sites say that it is the most played song in the history of American FM radio. To this day, it is the best-selling song every year for sheet music because everybody who takes up the guitar thinks that they can play Stairway to Heaven, and they are all quickly disabused of that, aren't they, Paxson, right? Sells 15,000 copies or more a year, all right? But now, as great as the composition and I really enjoyed my study this week as I went through YouTube and found different people playing it at different times of my study to take a break. Um, as great as the composition of the music is and Jimmy Page's you know, dual guitar, you know, the tandem guitar, as awesome as all that is, it's really the lyrics that I'm most concerned about this morning. It's most relevant. And it's the opening lyrics that Robert Plant composed. And there's a deep meaning behind these lyrics. It says, there's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold. And she's buying a... Yeah, gotcha. All right. We're, we're on the same wavelength this morning. She's buying a stairway to heaven, right? You know, throughout human history, the number of people who have thought 
that they could buy themselves into happiness and fulfillment, who could purchase their way out of a dark and empty, a vain existence. The number of those people is innumerable. It's absolutely, you couldn't count them. Those with the means, they use those means to purchase experience after experience, toy after toy, possession after possession, trying to purchase that stairway to heaven that would satisfy the deep longing of the soul. And those without the means work their lives to try to acquire the means, believing that this is the path, this is the cure to their loneliness, to their fear, to the darkness and emptiness of their souls. And Paxton just talked a few moments ago about recovery and living free. The reason why we emphasize this in our church is because so many of us as Christians, either ourselves or we know those who have extended periods of time because of bondage to sin, where they feel as if God is just not even present in their life. They wonder, maybe I'm not even a Christian because of the bondage that comes with the addiction. Christians, too, who go through deep trials and deep tribulations, they also experience at times these feelings that God has maybe abandoned them and they need something to fill that emptiness, that loneliness. This is why our passage this morning is important. We have the first actual stairway to heaven in human history in this passage. And it too involves somebody who is very empty looking for answers. That person is Jacob. And as we come to this passage, it naturally breaks down into three groupings. Jacob's condition, in verses 10 to 11, his dream and the dream itself, we'll look at it in verses 12 to 15, and then his response to the dream and the rest of the chapter. And then, of course, we need to ask ourselves the all-important question, so what? Why does God put this story about a stairway to heaven in the book of Genesis for us to contemplate this morning? So let's begin in verse 10 with Jacob's condition. He left Beersheba and he went toward Haran and he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. In just a couple of verses, the narrator gives us the setting for this entire passage, and the one word that can maybe describe this setting is dark, dark. Is physically dark. Jacob's experienced physical darkness, emotional darkness, spiritual darkness. He comes to this place and that word place is used throughout the passage too. It's a mysterious place. It's an unknown place. And the sun is going down. It's getting dark. So physically, this represents for Jacob a sense of danger and loneliness. Because at night, at dark, you know, when you're out in the wild, especially in the ancient world, that's when the, the, the mountain lions and the hyenas and the different animals that could, you know, eat you come out, right, at night. And when bandits come who would, you know, imperil your life and rob you and kill you for your possessions. Emotionally, it's a dark time for Jacob as for the first time in his life, he finds himself separated from his family. He's all alone and his future looks bleak indeed. And then spiritually, it is dark because the reason why Jacob is in this place and finds himself all alone without any family support is because of his own sin it's his sin that puts him in this situation. 
How did he get here? The context helps us. I referred to it last week, right? Isaac is getting to the point of death. He's an old man. He's blind. And he tells his favorite son, Esau, who was born just moments before Jacob, that to go and, and kill an animal and to come back and to make his favorite meal. And when he got back, he would give Esau the birthright and the blessing that comes to the firstborn. Of course, you know from last week, God had promised and said it wasn't to be the firstborn, Esau, who gets this, but Jacob, the secondborn. But for some reason, Isaac is going to go with his favorite. Jacob hears about this, and so he and Rachel hatch a plan. They make the meal themselves. They, they put hairy fur all over Jacob's arms and his face because Esau was very hairy, and Jacob was smooth. And they send him in there, and he impersonates Esau. He deceives his father. His father feels his arms and his face, and he feels hair, but something's not right. And so he asks Isaac, or excuse me, he asks Jacob, are you Esau or Jacob? And, and he replies with a, a vow. He takes the name of God in vain. He swears by God and says, I, by the name of God, am Esau. And so Isaac gives him this blessing. When Esau finds out, he goes ballistic. He is determined, I'm going, and he says it, I am going to kill my brother the moment my dad dies. And since he was the bigger, stronger, maybe the more manly hunter kind of guy, warrior guy, Jacob knew he can do it. And so with Isaac and Rachel's blessing, he runs. He heads to Haran, which is where Rachel is from and where uh, uh, Jacob's uh, uncle Laban lives. Laban was Rachel's brother. And so here he is, three days from home. He comes to this place. It's a significant place in the life of Abraham. If you think back to when Abraham came to Canaan for the first time, we read in Genesis 12, verse 8, that he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. This is the place that Jacob has come to, this place of holiness. And he doesn't realize the, the significance of the area that he's in. Instead, what he does know is that he is facing a very bleak future, a time of destitution and uncertainty. And it's all because of his scheming. Yeah, he, he received the birthright and the blessing, the promise of the land. But what you now see here is that rather than living in the promised land, Jacob is leaving the promised land. He's retracing the route that Abraham took to come to the promised land, and he's exiting that place that is symbolic of God's blessing and God's presence. You know, this is what happens, church, whenever human beings and whenever we you know, take matters into our own hands. We trust ourselves. We rely upon our own wisdom and our own means rather than obeying and trusting in God. Peter Quist was an early director of Youth for Christ when it began in the 1940s, early 1950s. And he was known for saying, faith is living without scheming. Jacob was a schemer. And as a result of this scheming, his life was now in a dangerous place. He's at his lowest. He's afraid. He's running for his life. He has very few possessions. He's going to make a month-long journey to Haran. Any number of things could happen. 
Yet it's in the the darkest period of his life that something significant happens to Jacob. God bursts into his life and interjects himself. And he has a life-changing encounter with God. And we see this in the dream. Now, when you think about this dream, we need to realize three things about it as we focus upon it. We need to realize, we need to look at the dream's details, the dream's purpose, and the dream's message. When you come to verse 12, Jacob dreamed, behold, there was a ladder. So now we're going to get the details of what this dream was all about. This ladder was set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, now let's stop right there. Um, most of us, when we think of a ladder, right, we think of that irritating thing that we pull out and put up against our house to empty out our uh, gutters on a regular basis. For me, it, about every two months because of the oak trees in my yard, right? I hate that thing. It's clunky. I carry it around, right? That's what we think of as a ladder. But that's actually a, not a good translation of the word that is here. It's not a ladder like we think of a ladder. It's more like a grand staircase, Okay, that's why a stairway to heaven comes out of this idea. It's a big stairway, a grand stairway, or maybe a, a massive ramp. Really, we've, we've run into one of these already. It was in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. Remember that story where, where the humanity built a ziggurat out of worship to God, out of their man-made religion. A ziggurat was a, a series of steps that progressed their way up to a terrace. And then on that terrace was altars where you would sacrifice and you would worship God and you would go up more steps to another terrace and you would repeat it. And finally, you would get to this place on the ziggurat where there was like a, a temple shrine. And it was there that supposedly, uh, if you had induced God well and you had done your religious work properly, then your God would stop on his way from heaven to earth or from earth back to heaven and spend the night and eat some meals and, 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 and you know, indulge his pleasure. This was the result of man-made religion. But remember those ziggurats and the, the layered steps of the ziggurat, that stairway to heaven, that was humanity's effort. This is an actual stairway to heaven. It's a divine stairway. And when Jacob sees it, angels are coming up and down. And, and listen, church, when we come across angels in the Bible, understand they are as far from Della Reese as they can possibly imagine, right? Those of you who are too young, you don't know what that means, but touched by an angel, right? Look, angels in the Bible were not this grandmotherly, you know, woman who was so comforting. Angels of the Bible were so overwhelming that when humanity came into existence, into contact with them, the angels' first words were typically what? Fear not. They were incredible. They are incredible creatures and, and, of, and creations of God that would in, inspire fear and terror in the hearts of any of us if we saw one in their glory. And so Jacob is seeing that. And then it says, the Lord stood above it and said, the question here is, and there's debate, was, was the Lord at the top of the stairway or... Does it mean that the Lord came down the stairway and was standing above Jacob? 
So that when he opens his eyes and he sees these angels, he sees God himself come down to him and face to face begin to interact with him. Now there's debate on both sides of which one it is. I personally believe it's that God came down and he hovers over Jacob and he sees it. And the reason why is because it says the Lord stood at the top and he said, and in the scriptures, when Jesus, when God is far and away, he calls to people. But when he enters close to them, like with Abraham earlier in Genesis, he says to them, and there's a difference there. I think what you have here is this incredible, beautiful picture of God's grace that prefigures what he's going to do and a thousand, two thousand years later when Jesus comes down and takes on human flesh and interacts with us. So there's the dream's details. How about the purpose? Why does God do this? And behold, verse 13 says, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. You know, the case can be made, I think very clearly, that in Jacob's spiritual actions and conditions seem to speak to this, that Jacob, he knew about the God of Abraham and Isaac, but Jacob did not know the God of Jake, Abraham and Isaac. Just a few days before, he's using the, this same God's name in vain to deceive his father with his scheme. He's sinning, he's deceptive, and yet here, this very same God comes down, condescends in his grace to interact and to introduce himself to Jacob. This is why this happens. For the first time, Jacob is going beyond knowing about God to knowing God. Let me, let me ask you, think about this scene for a second. If you were Jacob, right, and you had done what you had just done and lived the way you have been living for many years, what would you expect the God of the universe to say to you at such an occasion? You know, maybe you'd say, why did you use my name in vain? Why did you lie to your dad and use me to help convince him and to deceive him? Well, you might expect words of judgment, words of condemnation, words of anger and wrath, and certainly just the sheer glory of God would bring about that fear that, oh no, I'm in for it now, right? But instead, what you see here is that Jacob gets pure, unadulterated grace. And, and, and what happens is God interacts with him and reaffirms to him the land promises and the covenant promises that he had given to Abraham. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread abroad. And he goes on to describe this incredible blessing. So in this incredible scene, God intends to introduce himself to Jacob for the first time, which he does. And the reason why he does it, the purpose in, the, in this message is this right here. Verse 15, behold, this is a central part of the entire text, church. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. You know, back in Genesis chapter 17, verse seven, 
You know, God concealed the covenant with Abraham and a major way that God committed himself to Abraham was when he said, I will establish an everlasting covenant to be your God and to your offspring after you. I will be God to you and to your offspring also. So here's Jacob. He's deserving judgment. He's deserving condemnation. And God is essentially saying to Jacob, I'm going to be to you, Jacob, God. I'm going to be to you who I am. And who am I? I am this almighty creator who is filled with grace and love for you. And the details of this verse are important. Because God commits himself to Jacob in this manifestation of grace. He says, I promise my presence will always be with you. I am with you wherever you go. You see, back in the ancient world, people saw the gods or God as a local deity. And and, and your God that you worship in your homeland was not the powerful God of another homeland. When you left the boundaries or the borders of your area or of your nation, then you needed to worship that other local God. And There's this whole structure throughout the ancient world, and it makes sense that it would be like this because behind these false religions and false gods are demonic powers and beings who are linked to the lands in which these religions and false gods exist. But here is the creator God, Jehovah, who says, I am not like these false gods who are bound by a certain geographical constraint. I'm going to go with you even when you leave this promised land, wherever you go, I will be there. He promises his presence. He promises protection. I will keep you wherever you go. You hear that word almost every Sunday, don't you? And the high priestly blessing that I give you, I will keep you. The psalmist helps us understand what this little word means. It's important. And it's the idea of protection. The Lord keeps you from all harm and watches over your life. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go both now and forever. So God in this message to Jacob says, I'm going to be with you wherever you go. My presence will always be there. My protection will be with you. And then he says, I will bring you back to this land. In other words, he's promising a posterity for Jacob that will transcend his lifetime. He's not going to be a a lifelong fugitive. He's not going to be a resident alien for the rest of his life in Haran. His inheritance, his future, it is in Canaan. And God promises to preserve Jacob and to bring this promise about. It's interesting, as you read the next many chapters and you fast forward 20 years, when Jacob returns to this land, he returns with this posterity and he returns prosperous. And this promise of God is something that he refers to during the, the trying, difficult 20 years that his heat while he is in Haran. I will be with you wherever you go. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So how does Jacob respond to this? right? I mean, you have this encounter with God. The rest of the passage shows us that the very first thing that occurs is this sudden spiritual awareness. 
The blinders have now been removed after this encounter with God. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. All of his life, he knew about God. Now he knows God. All of his life, he may have believed in God, the intellectual existence of God, but now, for the first time, he believes God. Faith is present in his life. There's also reverential fear. I think we all could understand this one, right? If we woke up to that kind of vision and that kind of message, in verse 17, he was afraid. Literally, the word was, he was terrified. He was petrified. He's like Isaac, when I, or excuse me, Isaiah, when Isaiah sees his vision of God and the holiness of God, he falls down on his face before God and he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm an unclean sinner. This always happens when someone gets a glimpse of who God is, what immediately you see is the depth of your own sin and how worthy we are of judgment and condemnation, not grace. And then in verses 17 to 19, there's this scene. So apparently in the ancient days, rocks were considered comfortable at bedtime. Okay, (laughs) I don't get that, but but, you know, I guess one reason why, you know, you would kind of do that was maybe to get up off the ground some with, you know, spiders and tarantulas, all those things, ladies that you love. And uh, so he gets up and he takes this slab of rock and he, he lifts it up. And there's this scene where he, he, he establishes it as a, like a, a pillar. It's, it's like a, a pillar of remembrance. And then he takes oil and he pours it out over this pillar of remembrance. This is a, an act of consecrated worship. And he says, this place, which used to, was named, named a city in the area region was Luz. He says, no, this is Bethel. We've already been introduced to the word Bethel back with Abraham. We just read it in Genesis 12, 8. But that's the narrator giving the word, the name for the place that Jacob assigns. Jacob is the one who names the area Bethel, which means the house of God. And it's the gate of heaven, which is ironic because the word Babel means gate. The Babylonians thought Babel and the city of Babel was the gate to heaven. And they built their stairways to heaven because this was the gateway of the gods. And Jacob says, no. Not at all. It's here, right? And to all of this, at the end of this passage, you see Jacob's personal commitment. And you have this scene where he makes a vow to to God. And if you read it from one particular perspective, it sounds like uh, Jacob is bargaining with God. You know, if you do these things for me, God, then I will tithe, okay? And that, that just sounds just like more what? Jacob scheming, right? But that's where our translation, I think, is is not serving us well, and our understanding isn't serving us well. The wording that he uses here is the acceptable wording in the Old Testament of someone who's entering into a vow with God. Maybe the better way for us to understand it is instead of the preposition if, is since. Since you are going to do these things, God, I'm yours. I'm going to worship you, I'm going to serve you, and the symbol of my commitment and my service and obedience to you and my trust in you is that I will tithe my belongings and what you bring to me. So there's this personal commitment where where Jacob responds by saying, after his encounter with God, I will serve you, I will worship you. 
everything I have belongs to you, but out of symbolic allegiance to you, I'm gonna return a tithe, that which Abraham had done and Isaac had done. He carries on this pattern of understanding that we worship God by returning our possessions back to God because they're not ours, they're his. So this is an incredible story in the life of Jacob. So what, right? Lots of good stories, probably stories about Jacob that are not included in the Bible that would have been interesting and fascinating to read. Why this story? I would suggest to you that there's three gospel applications for us this morning. And the last one of which is gonna be our takeaway truth. The first gospel application from this story that we should realize is that God is at work even when we doubt and don't see it, right? God is at work even when we doubt and don't see it. All of us have dark times. Even as Christians, we have dark times of doubt and confusion. It can be through trials and tribulations. It can be because of sin that's in our lives. It can be because of circumstances that are taking place in the world. And we pray and we ask God and we appeal to God and we don't get any answer. It's like there's silence. I think almost all of us as individuals have known that. I know as a church, there's been seasons where we have sought God's guidance and it's just like, where are you, God? It's like we're in an echo chamber and we can't hear from him. Certainly, this is an experience known to the men and women of God throughout the ages. King David was, you know, that, the man after God's own heart, apple of God's eye. Before he was king, there's a phase in his life. I call it the cave phase the cave phase of David's life, right? He, he's being pursued by Saul. Saul wants to kill him. And so to protect his life, he goes to the Philistines, to the city of Gath. And the only way they'll take him in is for David to basically act like he's insane. And for an extended period of time in his life, he pretends to be insane so that they will take him into his city because they were afraid of him as a warrior of Saul. But now he's this insane guy. He's worthy of their pity. They bring him in and they're essentially protecting him from Saul. But ultimately they drive him out of the city. And at his lowest point, he makes his way to a cave in the middle of the mountains of the Judean foothills. And, and there he's, at his, he's in despair. And in the depth of his despair and discouragement, here's what he prays, and we see it in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O my Lord. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He was in his cave phase. Have you ever, are you going through a cave phase? Have you been through one recently? Are you wondering what is it that God is doing? Does God even care about what's going on in my life? Where is he? At Jacob's darkest time at this, to this point in his life, God revealed something very important to him and to all of us. Even when we don't see it, even when we may doubt it, God is actively at work in this world and in our lives. He is pursuing his agenda. He is carrying out his uh, uh, objectives for his glory and for our good. Remember, 
The most basic description of faith that we started in back in September, the beginning of September, as we kicked off this ministry year and this theme for the year. We look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Church, even if you're in a cave phase or you're Life is dark and it's confusing. Know that God is at work in your life. And he promises to work it out for his glory and your good. A second application. Jesus is the connection between humanity and heaven. We come to a story like this. And Paxson referred to it earlier. The, the, the guys on the road to Emmaus. And on the road to Emmaus, to those men, Jesus says, I am all throughout the law and the prophets and the Psalms. I'm everywhere. And so we come to a story like this and we say, okay, where is Jesus in this story? Is he the rock? Because certainly in the New Testament, right? He he uses that metaphor of being a rock. So is Jesus the rock? Does the rock symbolize Jesus here? Or or is he Jacob? Is he Is he symbolized by the angels, the messengers of God, and he's the ultimate angel? Or perhaps he's God himself, and we know that he is God, the second person in the Trinity. So do we just see, you know, when God comes down, that this is Jesus? Where is Jesus in this story? We don't have to actually wonder about this story. We don't have to guess because Jesus himself actually tells us the answer. In John chapter 1, he's choosing his disciples, and he's called a few, and some of these guys go and they get their friends. And one of them, Philip, comes to a man by the name of Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's under a fig tree, just chilling one day. And Philip comes up to him and says, I have met the Messiah, the Son of God. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Come and meet him. And Nathaniel kind of scornfully says, What good comes out of Nazareth? Right? And he said, no, you got to come. You gotta. And so he you know, gives in to his friend and he comes to meet Jesus. And just as he comes up to Jesus, and I almost can hear Jesus chuckling when he says this, he looks at Nathaniel, he points to me, he says, now here is a man in Israel who is free of deception and guile. In other words, here's a man who speaks what he thinks. And Nathaniel says, wait a second. How can you say that about me? You don't know me. And Jesus says, oh yeah, I knew you and I heard you while you were under the fig tree. And Nathaniel freaks out. That's impossible. How could you know this? You must be the Messiah, God in the flesh. And Jesus says, if that impresses you, Nathaniel, you haven't seen anything yet. And he points right back to this passage. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Who is Jesus in this story? Notice the preposition here in chapter 1, verse 51. He doesn't say the angels will descend to me. He says the angels descend on me. Jesus is the stairway to heaven in this story, church. And if you here this morning are looking for answers, you're seeking them, and maybe you're in a dark place in your life, understand the answer is found in Jesus. The scriptures tell us that he is, there's one God and one mediator between God, and this is 
Christ Jesus, that it's through him that we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He will say to all who hear him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Why? Because he's the connection. He's the stairway to our creator. And so if you want to be reconciled to your God, to have your sins forgiven, to enter into relationship where you finally have that peace, that fullness that you are looking for, that you've been looking to other things for, the answer is Jesus. He's the ultimate stairway to heaven and to our creator. And so those of you who are seeking, turn to him. Those of you who have been raised in the Christian faith, an important question for you this morning is, which side of Jacob's dream are you? Are you the Jacob who knew about God, who believed in God before the dream and the vision? Or are you the Jacob after who knows God, who believes Jesus and knows Jesus, not just some intellectual exercise, but a deep spiritual reality of your life. Which Jacob on which side of the vision are you this morning? Church member? Is it cultural or is it real? Well, one final application this morning as we end. And the most important, God is always with us, ready to comfort, strengthen, and guide. Verse 15, it's the central part of the chapter. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. You know, a few years later, Moses is standing before the burning bush and he's told by God to go to Pharaoh and he's petrified. And in Exodus chapter three, verse 12, God's answer to him is that I promise I will be with you. And then when Joshua is standing on the the, the shores of the Jordan River, ready to invade Palestine, and, and he's petrified and scared at the task before him. Jesus actually appears to him, and in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, he says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And when Isaiah hundreds of years later, is contemplating the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel. He's filled with discouragement and despair. And God gives him a vision and comforts him about his life and about true Israel. And he says in Isaiah 43, verse two, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. This same prophet, God promises to him that one day, again, heaven will open and descending from heaven will be God himself who takes on flesh, who will be born of a virgin. And hundreds of years later, Matthew takes that vision of Isaiah and he opens it up in the first chapter of Matthew. And we read in Matthew chapter one, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So then Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he says, listen, I am the good shepherd for the sheep, but I'm also the gate through which people have to enter if they wanna enjoy the eternal pasture of God. And then as he was preparing to ascend to heaven, 
as Paxson referred to a few moments ago, and he gives the commission to all of Christianity to go and make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them, to obey the commands of Jesus. He ends with a final encouragement, and he says to them, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of this when the Holy Spirit comes. And now when we confess our sins and we turn to Christ in faith, we are filled with this Spirit and we become the house of God as individuals. And then when two or three of us are gathered together in His name, Jesus says, there I am with you. This is a theme that begins in Genesis 28, it goes throughout the scripture, and then it finally concludes at the very end of the Bible. Stand with me, church. And let's read out loud together, if you will stand. In Revelation chapter 21, God gives us this vision of the restoration of all things. And here's how he describes the importance of this and what it will mean to us. Let's read it out loud together. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Amen. As God promised to Abraham, I will be God to you. And to Isaac and to Jacob, I will be God to you, which means I will be with you every moment of your life to guide and strengthen and encourage. He promises this goes all the way into eternity. For we are Abraham's seed because we are in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reassuring promise. For the one here this morning who perhaps does not know you as their Lord and Savior, may today, even today, be the day of their salvation. For the one who perhaps has been a member of this church for years, may today be a day where you reveal to them that their relationship with you has been intellectual, but it hasn't been spiritual. Open eyes, Lord, that can see and ears that can hear. Lord Jesus, thank you for descending taking on flesh and dying for us. Thank you for connecting us to our creator so that even now, anytime we want, we have access into the very throne room of God and of heaven itself. In your name we praise you, Jesus. Amen.